Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout to the Lord, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of singing, with trumpet and the blast of the ram's horn. Shout for joy before the Lord, the King. Let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. I delight gratefully, greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of his salvation and arrayed me in his robe of righteousness. As the bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as the bride adorns herself with her jewels, just as the soil brings forth the sprouts, and as the garden makes the seeds come forth, so our sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring forth before all nations. Isaiah 61, 10, and 11. He also said, This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters his seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, but he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, and then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it, because the harvest has come. There is tremendous value, of course, in exploring the Old Testament stories that we've been exploring and looking at some of the themes, the larger themes that Scripture holds. And as we move, hopefully, toward inspiration and greater biblical literacy, each of us, there are other things to explore as well. One of those is the ways in which some of the the very uh, fabric of Scripture is written and woven with the idea of metaphor. We hear it constantly, and I know your mind probably processes it as you're hearing it as mine does. And there's something rich about that because there's a way in which all of this sinks into our consciousness, especially if the metaphor is culturally relevant, in ways that otherwise it doesn't. Think about all the discussion groups and blogs and so forth that occur around the release of a movie, particularly a movie that's metaphor-laden or rich with some kind of meaning that goes beyond the acting that's taking place on screen. There's so much conversation generated around a story. And this is part and parcel of what happens in our scriptures, in our Bible. 
there are things that have meaning way beyond the word itself. And if we're going to talk about the Bible even in an introductory sense, we need to have an idea of what some of those are, where they lead, what they might mean, and why they're so rich. And I'm going to use this harvest season as kind of a springboard to talk about a few of those. You see, one of the projects that we need to actively engage is what I call re-mythologizing the scriptures. Now that is a dangerous phrase in this world. Dangerous. I'm well aware that my voice is being recorded, that that recording will go online on our website, that people listening to this service will hear me say that phrase. And if they take it just as it is, I am likely to be in great trouble. Hopefully they'll listen to the whole recording and understand exactly what I mean by that. We have fallen in many cases in Protestantism and in Adventism in particular into a literalization of scripture that is neither helpful nor instructive. If you take, for example, the parables and you don't understand them as parables but try to literalize them, they're not only not very interesting or clever, they lose their spiritual value. Jesus was very good at speaking in riddles because he had things he didn't necessarily want to make plain. He makes that point over and over again because the way Jesus describes it, spiritually we understand things that come to us in a spiritual way. That is to say, if you have eyes, let, may you see, and if you have ears, may you hear what the Spirit is saying. This is not the same as seeing and hearing. We're talking now about the eyes of our heart, as the scripture calls them. We're talking now about something deeper, something more mystical. We're talking about spiritual sight, the capacity to see beyond a word or a concept or a phrase the capacity to take a story and explore its depths, to take a parable and see the ways in which it enriches our lives. Now, the second problem that we're stuck with is not only do we need to re-mythologize some of Scripture, and by the way, I've said this many times in my sermons, but I'll be very clear about it even now. By myth, I do not mean falsehood. By myth, I mean reality construction. We participate in the realities in which we live. We see things through cultural and other filters, and we make a reality in which we engage and participate in. That's the way in which things work. That's the way in which we derive meaning. And so if we can re-mythologize scripture and understand it in those terms, not as just another fairy tale, that's not what I'm talking about, but as a book laden with richness and blessing and meaning, we have a much better chance of seeing it and growing in it spiritually than we would otherwise. So that's the task before us. The other task before us, and I'm going to be blunt, and I can't really help you with this, is relevancy. None of you that I know of are farmers. 
In fact, it may be that you have a father or grandfather that was a farmer. It may be that you have a not-so-distant relative. Here's a farmer. I'm sorry, I do have one. I have a farmer here. Very few of us are farmers tilling the soil with our hands, making uh, uh, seeds uh, grow, grow as we plant them and water them and, and hope for sunshine and good soil and all of those other pieces. The agrarian models are lost on contemporary urban America for the most part. And so some of our core biblical examples don't seem to pack the punch for us as we read them that they probably once did for people who faithfully tilled the soil. Now bear in mind, in biblical times, farms were very small. Animals were employed, if available, and tilling the soil was literally taking a plowshare an iron piece attached to wood with handles, and driving it through the soil by the strength of your hands and the pull of a donkey or an ox or whatever you could afford. Tilling the soil meant turning it with a wooden spade. Breaking up clots of dirt and making sure stones were removed was a back-breaking work. Soil itself was understood to be very precious, the earth itself contributed in some kind of mystical and wonderful way to life. And we have lost touch with dirt. We try to simply sweep it out of our houses and wash it off of our bodies. It is not mystical, magical, or wonderful. And yet, if you take the story of Genesis, God formed humankind from dirt and breathed into it the breath of life, and that hunk of dirt combined with this breath and energy of God becomes a living soul. Now that's mystical. That's exciting. That's generative. That's something interesting. That's something powerful. That's something true. Because dust I was formed from, and unto dust will I return, for only God is immortal. I'll have a beginning and an end, and unto dust will I return. But if I sprang from the dust and I return to the dust, this dust is not meaningless. This dust, this dirt, the soils that bring forth a crop have great importance that we're not as deeply connected to. We have hope. How many of you are familiar with organic movements and some of the urban garden movements that are happening out there? People are realizing, even in huge cities, that box gardens on the roofs of apartments can actually produce a fair amount of produce, that people can be sustained or helped with this produce in some kind of way. Vacant lots are being turned into community gardens. And people are coming together once again to till small plots of land, to turn soil, to plant seed, to harvest. We're beginning to realize that that backyard citrus tree might be a better investment in the long haul than something that produces nothing or in that swimming pool that leaks. I know because I've had leaky swimming pools. I have a leaky spa. It's kind of exciting. Oh, anyway, long stories. 
When we get back to these pieces, which we're starting to do in our culture, when we realize how life depends on these things, we begin to reinfuse them with some kind of meaning. The farmer's market isn't just another place to buy groceries. It becomes a place where we shake hands with the people who grow things. It becomes a place where we get to ask about how their crop has been, what their season or cycle is. Are they in the mountains or in the valley? What kind of soil are they growing in? Do they use pesticides or are they organic? Are they certified organic? These are the sorts of things that we're, we're starting to ask. And we're gathering in these communities to, to, to pick these pieces. So in the Bible, just to, to pull back to our theme, you already heard several mentions of soil. Soil, if you plug it into any kind of commentary or you know, word listing thing, comes up multiple times. Jesus used soil as an illustration quite often. And in fact, what was read from in Luke earlier in the chapter there, and also in Matthew and also in Mark, these synoptic gospels, is the story of the soils. There was a farmer who went to plant seed. And as he scattered the seed, some fell upon the path, hardened soil. And the bird came and picked up the seed, and nothing from it sprang. Some of it fell in rocky soil, shallow soil, and when the sun came out, it scorched the young plant, and it withered and died. Some of the seed fell on soil and grew up amidst thorns and thistles and was choked out by weeds and didn't produce. And some of it fell in good soil and that sprouted up and per grain produced 20 or 40 or 60 head of grain. This was Jesus' story. And then the disciples, living at this time, I guess they were fishermen, so they still struggled with the uh, gardening model, didn't understand it and asked for it to be revealed to them. What is the meaning of this story? Well, Jesus isn't talking about a guy with a, a sash full of seed. That's not the meaning of the story. He's talking about how we receive truth. He's speaking of our spiritual capacities to hear and respond and grow. The hard soil is completely unreceptive. The shallow soil we've all seen, we've seen it in our church. We experience it yearly. People who come, they seem very excited to hear what we have to say or what the gospel presentation might be. They want to make changes in their lives and they get going and then all of a sudden, boom, as fast as they joined, as fast as they came into the scene, as fast as they wanted to learn, they're gone. Turned, done, dead. We've seen the effects of things choking people. Worry. Problems with faith. 
doubts. We've seen people, and by the way, doubt is not an all bad thing, so I want to hit that some other time. We've seen people with bad habits that they've been unable to work through. People with perspectives that are toxic. People who are intent on holding on to grudges and absolutely unwilling to forgive. They have been wronged and that is their birthright and that will be their death right as well. And spiritually it is. And they're choked out. Their spirituality dies. They're not productive for the kingdom of God because they're choked out by the weeds. And then there's good soil. And good soil we know because what happens is the soil produces a crop. The seed becomes self-perpetuating. And it doesn't just reproduce itself. It reproduces itself in multiples. It's not addition growth. It's multiplication growth. It's factorial growth. The good that comes of a person's life isn't just the one-to-one difference that might be made. It's a regeneration in multiples. Why? Is that necessary? Because if you have a quantity of seed, think about this, and some of it gets eaten by the birds, and some of it sprouts up to nothing, and some of it is choked out and produces nothing, you've just wasted three quarters of your seed. That quarter that you've invested in the good soil has to produce enough to feed you and your family and has to produce enough beyond that to be replanted in the process. Now, I don't know what the current cultural metaphor might be for this. I don't know where we stand in today's market of stories that would help us understand this. But I want to I talk a, about a couple of other things related to soil. And that's toil. Toil is not used a lot in contemporary versions, but if you go to the King James Version, you'll find it a lot. It's present in contemporary versions. Anybody know, not know what toil means? Toilsome labor is this sort of cycle of burden, burdensome perpetual work. The soil requires toil for preparation. It goes back to the curse, doesn't it? From dust we were made and unto dust we returned. But right there in Genesis 3, we find the ground itself cursed and it becomes man's lot to work the soil so that he might eat. The very existence we have, this bread of human life, comes from toil. And don't we know it? Some of you work not 40 hours a week, not 45, not 50, not 55. Some of you work 60, 70, even 80 hours a week. Toilsome labor to take care of your families, to get ahead, to make it work economically. Some of you have jobs that are relatively dirt-free. And some of you are engaging the dirty jobs of life all the time. 
You have a, a deeper connection perhaps to this notion of soil and toil. It is from the sweat of our brows that a living comes forth and that is the curse upon the soil and upon us. And we toil in Scripture not just for material. We toil in Scripture for the harvest and that's a metaphor for something else. How beautiful are the feet of them that bring the gospel of peace. Our feet, clad in leather sandals, walking on paths where animals have trod. Our feet, dusty and dirty. Our feet, covered with the mud of mud puddles. How beautiful are the feet. How beautiful are the feet of them that have walked behind that plow and tilled the soil. Are they really beautiful? No. We just have to work at hearing the truth of what underlies that. Out of the curse we've been given a vineyard to work in, to prune, to water, to fertilize, to harvest. And then the work isn't all over. The grapes must be laid out to dry, to be kept as raisins for food later, or must be pressed to be made into juice and wine to be used later. There's process to everything. And toil is a part of each step of the way. It doesn't mean that we don't take joy in our work. It doesn't mean that out of the toil, in working soil, so to speak, there isn't great reward. The reward we find comes in harvest and the celebration that surrounds that. We're entering that season, whether we're talking about the Korean festival Chuseok or whether we're talking about uh, Thanksgiving American style, whether we're talking about Kwanzaa, which is a ways down the way, which is really more of a harvest festival than uh, something akin to Christmas. We find that in every part of the world there is a sense of harvest festival, a sense of joy surrounding that which comes in. And I'm here to tell you today, you cannot understand the scriptures. We can't relate to the scriptures unless we can relate to the joy of harvest. Because the joy of harvest is not simply the food that sustains us in our lives here. The joy of harvest becomes something deep and rich. It becomes those who have responded. Those in the good soil who have produced and what they've produced. It becomes that which the Lord places his sickle down upon the earth and reaps. It's that which he claims as his own. So in addition to lots of language about soil, and I just want to go back one more time to that and remember a couple of things that we've already covered. Recall that when Moses was leading Israel, out of Egypt to the promised land, each tribe was given by the Lord a territory. That's land. 
And on the land there is soil. And from the soils, when the spring rains come, spring up grasses. And from the grasses, the sheep and the goats, the cattle and the oxen, the horses and all of these field animals graze and grow fat. And fatness becomes fecundity. This capacity to reproduce, this ripeness, this readiness, springtime. You have the earth itself ready to till, to plant the seed, and as the spring rains come, something magic happens. The ancients understood rains themselves to be laden with, as it were, the capacity for something to spring up. There was never a clear relationship between soil, seed, and rain in Scripture. We understand a little bit, but we have yet to penetrate the mystery of seed. Right? Can you make a seed grow? Well, can you? You cannot. A seed has within itself something mystical, something God has empowered it to do. It not only has the genetic imprint of what it's to grow into, but when the conditions are right, once it's died and hardened and become what it is, we plant it in soil. Soil provides nutrients. The sun provides the energy. And water provides the agent to soften and allow for cellular expansion. And yes, the seed starts to break its shell and grow and turn into something other than what it was. And even though we know how to do that and genetically modify that and plant that in tremendous fields with harvests that were unimaginable a hundred years ago, let alone a thousand years ago, our productivity today is unbelievable when you think about what we're able to do. We're feeding now on this planet, what, eight billion people close to it? give or take, that's a lot of food. It's a lot of food. So soil has meaning in terms of territory, in terms of animals and fields, in terms of farmland, in terms of the wealth of nations, in terms of feeding and caring for a people. Toil represents that which humans do in husbanding animals and in caring for the land. Which raises the question of ecology, doesn't it? If the earth is declared good as God's creation and the soils were there, what do we need to be doing to take care of all of this? How are we spiritually to address a planet that was given for sustenance through toil. Well, last concept this morning, and I'm sorry if this is putting you a little bit to sleep, but I want to bring you into this this metaphor, these pieces that are so common in Scripture, is the mystery of seeding itself. Most of the time in the King James Version in Scripture, seed actually refers to something other than 
seed. It refers to descendants, progeny. It refers to what is implicit or implied in seeding. It refers to the product of fertility. So the scripture says over and over again, to you and your seed I will give. I will put enmity between your seed and its seed. What that simply means is you have progeny, you have something ongoing, something that moves forth. Now, I'm going to just take a minute on this because there's something powerful about this. The mystery of seeding is largely unraveled in science. We know how babies are made of all stripes and kinds. We know what reproduction is and what it looks like. We understand this on a cellular level and on a subcellular level. We understand the genetic code at this point largely. We've unraveled that. We've made so many progresses in science. We can take an infertile couple and through in vitro fertilization, some of the time anyway, successfully help them have a baby. That's scientific advance. That's where we stand in this spectrum of, of modernity, post-modernity. But it doesn't take away the mystery or the wonder when a baby is actually born. We still rejoice. We still celebrate. We still fawn. Adults start to talk silly and look silly and ridiculous. We lose this sense of sensibility and reason. We lose this sense of being dignified because we're unraveled by a mystery that has just fallen before us. Unraveled. We can't miss that in what the scripture decides or describes, excuse me, because when we look at a blade of grass, bright green and fresh, it came from a seed. When we see an oak tree, and these trees are huge, and when they crash down, it's pretty powerful. It breaks things. They're heavy. And here they're able to sustain among wind and rain and storm, it's a miracle we don't lose more of them. And if you've ever seen an oak tree sprout, it's just this little scrawny, scragglery thing that comes up out of an acorn into a mighty one of those. And you don't make it happen, and science doesn't make it happen, and I don't make it happen. It happens all by itself because God is placed within the seed the capacity to become what it's ordained to become. When we are reproductive spiritually, we're constantly seeding the earth. We're constantly sharing ideas. We're constantly putting forth the gospel of the kingdom of God. We're forever engaged in an exercise of fertility. And where we plant the seed, so to speak, 
We are not responsible in the end for making it grow. Where does some of the seeds fall? It falls on hard ground. It falls amongst thistles and thorns. It falls in shallow soil. Only the Lord of the harvest determines the outcome. Makes the seed grow. Yes, we know. Good soil produces better crops than bad. Yes, we know. There's a way to prepare the soil to maximize a harvest. Yes, we understand. There is even difference in the quality of seed. Yes, we know. Without sunshine, nothing grows. And yes, again, we know that without water, and in fact, we know so much about water that we've created systems that we can grow wonderful things in the deserts. You realize that the eighth of the world's food comes from a place that used to be all desert. Where does an eighth of the world's food come from? California, the San Joaquin Valley. All desert. And we've watered it, and we've fertilized it, and we've made a bread basket of it for the world. We understand so many things that we've demythologized them. They're not that impressive. They're not that meaningful. We go to Ralph's to buy the apples, the apricots, the celery, the lettuces. We buy cans of things that others have harvested and others have put away. We aren't in touch at all with this everyday miracle of life of spiritual life. And it's our job to begin to re-mythologize these stories as we read them in Scripture so that we may be made alive by them. We are Abraham's seed. What does that mean? The Bible tells us that. And we're Abraham's seed, not if we're Jewish. We're Abraham's seed if we believe. Wow. You can't understand that materially. You can say Abraham had progeny, which had progeny, which had progeny. That is to say children who had children who had children who had children. And we have the Jewish race. And maybe we're Jewish individually or have that background. Maybe we're not. But at the end of the day, we're Abraham's seed, the scripture says, if we believe. That's because Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. All he did was go where God told him to do. The mystery is in the act of God. We, Even with all of our technologies and all the ways in which we help the process, we don't make the seed grow. Jesus describes a field planted with good seed and as it springs up, weeds spring up among it also because who knows why? And those tending the field are alarmed. Master, there is all kinds of weeds growing among the crop. What should we do? Shall we pull them up? And Jesus says, no. Let the wheat grow with the tares. 
And when it comes to harvest time, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll go out, we'll gather all of the tares, we'll bundle them up, and we'll throw them into a fire and burn them. And then we'll go out to the field and we'll gather the wheat because if you pull the tares out now, I'm afraid you'll pull some of the wheat out with it. These are the stories of Jesus. And they're there to tell us about our lives. They're there to disciple us, to move us into some kind of understanding and action to help us understand our own body and corporate life, that among us there are those who will not be productive for the kingdom of God. They may even choke at us a bit. But at the judgment day, the wheat is harvested in place in the barns of the Lord, so to speak. And that's another nice way of saying God's own are with him forever. That's describing in agrarian terms salvation. Soil, toil, seeding. When you read scripture, you're going to find these things over and over and over. And as we approach Thanksgiving, in which we'll celebrate the harvest and the Lord of the harvest, as well we should. So we approach this season. I want you to be in the word, thinking about the way in which these things we read are meant to speak to the ears and eyes of our hearts. That is to say, they're to be understood, not literally, but spiritually, mystically. They're to reach us in places that only a story can. They come out of our everyday experience and move us. And that's the other challenge. In your everyday walking and talking and coming and going, in your everyday routines and rhythms, in your everyday toils and work, listen for, look for what it is the Spirit has for you because in all of the ordinary lies the extraordinary in all of the known from all of that comes the mist the misunderstood the not understood or the mystically known and understood from the material transcends something spiritual And Jesus said it time and time and time again. If you have ears, may you hear. If you have eyes, may you see. And not just what lies before you, but what lies behind that and behind that. Because this is the vision that the Spirit brings. And so, out of your soiling, toiling, seeding, may God grow in you something wonderful. Something you have that you can share. 
Something that will make you productive for the kingdom of God. Something that can't be ignored. Something that causes you to stand up and rejoice. Something that makes the toil worth it. A harvest. For our God. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. For as the soil makes the sprout come up. And a garden causes seed to grow. So the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. May God raise in each of us righteousness and praise. Amen.